You could spend a bunch of time in this jam-packed chapter dealing with the deep and vital truth. But today we conclude chapter 3. In the midst of the chapter is one of the most important hinge points of the whole letter. Prior to Romans 3.21, Paul has been showing us our need for salvation, our unrighteousness, the universal sinfulness of mankind. Then in verse 21, the great hinge phrase occurs, but now. Then in Romans 3.21 and following, now Paul details the way of salvation, of Christ's righteousness, the answer to our dire predicament. Before, righteousness needed. After, Righteousness credited before God's holiness in judging sin, but now God's grace in justifying sinners. Before God's righteousness required, but now God's righteousness given. I think it's important and valuable for us today to put this important hinge point of the chapter together as a whole to help us better understand the conclusion of chapter 3. Verses 27 through 31 give us three concluding questions. Three questions that Paul asks in light of all that he's been teaching. So with the goal in mind of seeing the whole picture better and to better understand the end of the chapter, the before and the after, let's begin reading in chapter 3, starting at verse 9. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 9 through the end of the chapter. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Father, now we have this simple prayer. So we've read your word, that your truth of your word would jump off those pages through the power of your Holy Spirit and infiltrate our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our thoughts, challenging us and, and changing us and filling us with worship and awe of your plan and your power, of your beauty. And your Son, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the before of the hinge verse of 321, we see the total inability to save ourselves. Remember that illustration I used about the carpet cleaner using the black light to expose just how dirty the carpet was? How the black light would cause the pet stains to glow? The carpet cleaner said that when he used the black light to the horror of the homeowner, every pet stain could be seen. One homeowner begged him to shut off the light. I can't bear to see it anymore. I don't care what it costs. Clean it. Another woman said, I'll never be comfortable in my home again. He concluded saying, the offense was there all the time, but it was invisible until the right Light exposed it. Well, today, beloved, we stand evaluated by the light of God's word. And the light has exposed our sin, and we can't bear it anymore. Like those homeowners, the black light of God's word has shown us the offense that was there the whole time. Perhaps invisible to our hearts, but now exposed. The stain of sin is in each of us. As verse 9 says, we are all under sin, duly charged as unrighteous. God's law has exposed our hearts. We have broken the written words of God's law. We have broken the unwritten words of God's law on our hearts. Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious, rich and poor, powerful and lowly, every person of every culture, of every ethnicity, of all time. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None righteous in and of themselves. None who understand God in and of themselves. None who seek for the real God. No, we've all turned aside. We've all followed worthless and useless selfishness. There are none good in and of themselves. Not one, not you, and not me. 
Our tongues, our lips, our mouths, our words reveal the depravity of our hearts. Our feet, our path, our way, our actions reveal the depravity of our minds. The great and loving God of all creation stands powerful to judge, stands powerful to save, yet we have chosen our own way. There is no fear of God before our eyes. The before picture is clear. The before picture is stark. The before picture is real. If we are honest with ourselves at all, we can't escape the reality of the truth of our sinful condition, of our inherent drive of selfishness, of our prevailing struggle with pride, of our great desire to be our own God. The charges have been filed. The indictments have been handed out. And we stand before God, as verse 19 says, silent, mouth stopped, no defense given, no defense possible. We stand before our holy and loving God, accountable to the reality of our hearts, the reality of our actions, the reality of our sin and our unrighteousness. As verse 20 says, no effort, no work, no deed, no action, nothing we can do to rectify the situation, to save our souls. Our unrighteousness is proven, and we know it. And we hang our heads helpless and hopeless with no ability to change our guilty verdict. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Yes, that's the before for us, for all of mankind. As Ephesians 2 said, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. We proclaim like Paul did in Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 21. But now. But now. Suddenly a door of hope swings wide open. But now God steps up. But now God shows up. But now what we could never do comes to us. And the door of salvation is opened. But now he loves us first. But now he sends his son. But now Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, comes who will save his people from their sins. But now at just the right moment when we realize we have nothing to bring, that we are sinners Justly separated from God, lost and dead, accountable. But now at that moment, when all is lost, when hopelessness reigns, when judgment seems like our only outcome, but now God steps in. The hero shows up. Now the Savior rescues. Now the spiritually dead are raised to spiritual life. But now the righteousness from God has been manifested 
the righteousness from God has been revealed. The unrighteous now have hope. We have hope because the righteous one has come. And oh, what a salvation he brings. As verse 21 says, the the righteousness he brings is not earned. It's never merited. No, it's apart from the law. It's apart from our works. It's apart from our own efforts. The righteousness of God has always come to mankind through faith. It is never and can never be earned. It has always been by grace, through God's choice and actions. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. The law, the commandments of God were never given to save, but to expose our sin, to drive the sinner to see their fallenness and then to come in humility to God by grace through faith. The ultimate example of that, that Paul uses, is Abraham, which we'll see illustrated in the next chapter in Romans chapter 4, where he proves that salvation has always been and always will be. By faith. You see, we need a righteousness that is not our own. Because our own righteousness, as the prophet Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. It's like a polluted garment, useless and worthless. How do we exchange our unrighteous rags for for Christ's righteous garments? Verse 22 tells us, The righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For by grace are we saved through faith. And it's not our own doing. It is the gift of God. And then Paul explains how this transfer of righteousness happens with three important theological terms, each describing the work to bring us to salvation, each taking us into a different realm, each showing that it's God alone that is doing the action, each showing that salvation is by grace as a gift. Those three great works are justification and redemption and propitiation. Justification is a legal term and it takes us into the courtroom. Redemption is a purchasing term and it takes us into the marketplace. And propitiation is a sacrificial term and it takes us into the tabernacle and temple. Salvation from first to last is all God's work. It's all God's plan. It's all God's doing. Let's look at those terms. Justification means that God has declared the sinner righteous through the provision of Christ on the cross. How can God in his holiness and justice condemn sin and punishment? And at, at the same time in his grace and mercy forgive and redeem mankind? How can God declare a sinner to be saved? justification for only in the death of Jesus as our substitute for our sins could God's just wrath and holiness be satisfied and only in Jesus as our substitute given in love could God's grace and mercy come forth and reconcile ourselves to him 
and God declaring a sinner righteous, he credits, he imputes our unrighteousness onto Christ's account so that he pays the debt that we owe our sin. And then God credits to us, he imputes to us Christ's righteousness onto our account so that we stand in Christ, credited with his righteousness, accepted, beloved, declared righteous. Justification shows us why the gospel is such good news. Why is the gospel good news? Because Jesus has done it all. Tis ours, but to believe. Justification is a legal act of God in which he counts our sins as forgiven in Christ, Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and thus declares us righteous in his sight. What a great salvation. The next great act of salvation that's given to us is redemption. Redemption is to purchase back something that's been lost by by the payment of a ransom. We're enslaved to sin, under sin, bound, lost. No price we can pay can earn our salvation because the debt of our sin is way too high. The cost is way too much. But our God desires to have a relationship with us. Since it's impossible to obtain our freedom from sin by any of our own efforts, somebody else has to come and do it for us. We have to be redeemed. Instead of purchasing it by our own effort, we're bought with a price. Not our own merit. Not our own efforts or money. No, we could never afford the price. We were ransomed by another. The price for our freedom could only be paid by another. And what was that price? Jesus' life. Matthew twenty twenty eight says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the payment price for our redemption? The very life of our Savior. He gave his life as a ransom, as a payment to purchase us from the slave market of our sin, bound to sin. Jesus pays the price, buys us to make us his own. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 tells us that we were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The price of our salvation was paid by the sacrificial death and the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus redeemed us, shedding his blood, paying the ransom price for our salvations, purchasing us from sin, purchased by Christ to be his, for his glory, for his purpose, for his will. He bought us, we're his, we're his servants He's our master. We're his possession. Jesus is our Lord. Redeemed. How we love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Then verse 25 tells us that God put forth his son as a propitiation by his blood. The sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus atoned, propitiated God's just wrath on our sins. God's just judgment on sin was appeased by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus, our Savior. Propitiation is God appeasing himself of his just wrath on our sin by sending his son 
to die as a substitutionary sacrifice of our sin. Propitiation is God in his holiness and justice requiring that sin must be paid for. And in his love and in his grace and in his mercy providing that payment himself through the giving of his son. God's holiness required satisfaction and God's love provided that satisfaction. Oh, from the courtroom with our justification, from the slave market with our redemption, from the temple with our propitiation, God is the one doing the saving from start to finish. God justifies, God redeems, God propitiates. It's all about him, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his grace, his plan, our salvation. Is all about our amazing God securing and providing and offering us salvation. Verse 25 and 26 are all about how God's righteousness culminated in Christ's sacrifice. No sacrifice in the Old Testament actually forgave sins, but those sins were covered, they were passed over because forgiveness only happens through Christ Jesus. One wrote, the sacrifices and rituals of the Old Testament were only and always a placeholder pointing to Christ. They did not really pay the debts. God was accepting Abraham and Moses and David and all the Old Testament prophets when they repented and trusted in his mercy, but he accepted them on the basis of the future work of Christ. You see, God is now and always has been just and the justifier of the one who comes to him by faith. God is now and always has been the judge and the acquitter of the one who comes to him by faith. God is now and always has been the one demanding righteousness and the one providing righteousness. Salvation has always been by the triune God, for the triune God, through our triune God, because of our triune God, always. So in light of all this amazing truth, we come now to these three concluding questions at the end of the chapter, right there in verse 27. Take a look at it. The first question is, then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. Then what becomes of one saying that, that they have any part in and of themselves that they've earned or merited or even in the tiniest part their own salvation? It is excluded. It is eliminated. It is eradicated. Like people trying to swim from Hawaii to Japan. It doesn't matter at all your skill level, your ability, your training. You could literally be the best swimmer on the planet. But your end is going to be the same as the one who doesn't even know how to swim. Dead. No one can boast that they can swim from Hawaii to Japan. For all will die. All will fall short. There is nothing that they can do to make the outcome any different. So it is with us and our salvation. 
We all fall short. We all die. There's nothing, absolutely nothing we can do to affect the outcome any different. Where is boasting? It is excluded. On what basis? On what principle? By what truth is boasting excluded? Is it eliminated by a law of works? No. Boasting is eliminated by the rule of faith. Law in its essence is works and leaves room for boasting. Faith in its essence is workless and leaves no room for boasting. Boasting in our works is excluded by the rule of faith. As Paul has clearly taught throughout chapter 3, salvation is the work of God alone. The gospel closes the door on any and all possibility of boasting in ourselves. Salvation is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Jews boasted in earning their own righteousness. They boasted in their religiosity, like Paul himself used to do until he boasted in the Lord and what he had done. Paul says of himself in Philippians 3, If anyone else has any reason for confidence, if anyone else could ever boast in themselves, in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All things are lost. All things are rubbish. You know, there are more graphic translations of that word rubbish that really express just how Paul viewed what he once used to boast about. You see, rubbish is refuse. Rubbish is garbage. Rubbish is sewer and Trash, rubbishes, manure, and filth, and dung. No one boasts in rubbish. No one boasts in refuse. No one boasts in filth. But that's what our self-working, self-righteous deeds amount to. But boasting's not just a problem with the self-righteous. But even for those who could care less about righteousness, the Gentiles boasted, and they could have cared less about righteousness. They boasted in their ear religiosity. I don't need any of that. I know what's best for me. I'm going to boast in my own thinking. I'm going to boast in my own plan. I'm a self-made, self-focused, self-indulged. My own truth. Boasting is a challenge for the self-righteous religious and the self-satisfied irreligious. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, according to worldly standards, you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And, be, and who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. One wrote, if you understand the gospel of righteousness received, you will never boast. Or rather, you will never boast in yourself, but you'll boast only in someone who is not you and exclusively about someone and something you did not do, Christ and him crucified. Paul says he will never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians know they are saved solely and wholly by Christ's work, not their own. They take no credit for their standing with God, nor for their blessings from God. There is but one boast that will hold up, And that's to boast only in what Christ has done and who he is. In a most wonderfully clear and powerful statement that Paul says right there in in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So earth-shattering, powerful, important verse. I read that Martin Luther, who was the first to translate the Bible into the common German language, when he translated verse 28, he added a descriptive word. You could probably maybe guess what word he added. He wrote, For we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Although the word alone is not in the original, the truth of it is, The sentiment of it is, the inference of it is, boasting is eliminated because salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death. And resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen. The next question there in verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? See, the Jews had become so ethnocentric, so believing that their culture, that their way of doing things was so superior that they thought God belonged to them rather than that they belonged to God. The God of the Bible was their God, their exclusive deity. 
It wasn't that God chose them. It was that God was lucky to have them. Had they forgotten about Rahab, the Canaanite? Had they forgotten about Ruth, the Moabite? About Naaman, the Syrian? About the repentance of Nineveh? Had they forgotten about Isaiah and Isaiah 49.6, where God says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth? Had they forgotten about Isaiah 45, verse 22, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Had they forgotten, as we're going to see in much greater detail in chapter 4 about Abraham? His faith was credited to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. Abraham became the father of the nation of Israel, but he was yet a pagan Gentile before he became a Jew. And his faith came before he officially became a Jew. And God's covenant with him in Genesis 12 came to him while he was still yet an uncircumcised Gentile. And what does that covenant say? I will bless those who bless you. God says, I will dishonor those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a promise, what a purpose, what a plan fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. For from the very beginning, God's purpose was to bless the whole world, everyone, with his plan of salvation. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since there's only one God, and he justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. There's one God. There's one faith. God belongs to no one group to no one people, to to no one race. There is one God for all without distinction. There is one faith for all without distinction. There is one Christ, one Savior for all without distinction. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We dare not think as so many Christians have have done in the past, that God is our God, that Jesus is our Lord, He's our deity, He belongs to us. No, beloved, we belong to Him. He is the Lord of all, of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Well, then Paul asks and answers his last question there in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Since Paul was so much stressing the priority of faith, since Paul was so much putting the law in its proper place, some were confused about the role of the law. Some were accusing Paul of eliminating the law. No, he says no. Faith doesn't eliminate obedience to God's command. It upholds it. Faith does not give us a license to be disobedient. By no means may it never be. True faith upholds the very essence 
of wanting to be obedient to God and his commands. The New Living Translation gets a nuance of this verse, right? It says, well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. You see, obedience to the law, to God's commands outside of faith, is self-righteousness, is worthlessness. It leads to loss and to God's just judgment. But obedience to the law, to God's command, as a response of faith, is an act of love and devotion and relationship, and it leads to gain and to God's eternal blessings. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. See, true obedience is not a response to God's command to earn your status, but a response of faith to God's command out of love, out of relationship. Jesus said in fourteen twenty one, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. True obedience is not a way to merit good deeds for yourself. It's an expression of faith. Show your devotion to God. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments And his commandments are not burdensome. See, in true obedience, God's commandments aren't burdensome because it's not about us earning and doing and achieving and accomplishing. Oh, God's commands instead are the natural expression of our commitment, of our love, of our relationship with him. Loving obedience to God's command is the only proper response to a heart, to a life that has truly been changed by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. If anyone on planet Earth, anyone, should be known for their obedience and fidelity to God, it should be us. It should be the mark of our lives our loving, humble obedience to Christ. The gospel of justification by faith alone humbles sinners and excludes boasting, unites believers and excludes discrimination, and upholds the law of God and excludes a license to sin. Salvation is always and only the work of God. Can never boast. It's never about us. There is one God and he alone justifies everyone and anyone through the same faith. And the one true response to being justified, to being saved by faith, is to live a life of loving obedience to the commands of God. What a powerful ending to a powerful chapter. And our hearts cry out, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Let's pray together.
Oh, Father, may it be so. May it be so. Right now, may our hearts just resonate with the truth. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now in this moment of prayer, we recommit our love, our relationship to you. We recommit our connection to you, understanding all that you have done for us, the amazing truth of Romans chapter 3, of what we could never do and what you gloriously have done. We reject the follies of sin. And we come to you, humility and forgiveness to you. Perhaps today you've, you've listened to this sermon and for the first time things are starting to come together. For the first time you're starting to understand what really is the plan of salvation, what really Jesus has done for you. You've seen your own heart clearly in your sin. You've seen the beauty of Jesus as your Savior. So now I call to you, I urge you to be reconciled to God. To pray right now in your own words, from your own heart to God. Just pour out your heart to him. Explain your sin. Explain your failures. Ask for forgiveness for that salvation, for the redemption, understanding the propitiation, what Jesus has done for you on the cross and your sins. And then in thankfulness, Declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Call upon him today. Lord, now it is the privilege of our lives to glorify you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.